it's so good to be here with my Emerge family. Uh, if you like, if you're the type that's following actual Bible, Matthew chapter four. Um, if not, uh, we've created some easy to follow along with slides that, that you'll find very simple. A, a couple things before we get going. Um, you will see me very quickly disappear um, after this, um, and it's I'm not being a jerk. I'm not being unsociable. Uh, I'm not a high maintenance American. Yeah, they, they they want me to speak at Morrifield. And there's this time thing, you know, where you got to get there. So um, you're going to see me disappear pretty quickly after this. That's why. However, um, I'd like to invite you tonight to something. If you're familiar with us at all, um, what I always do uh, at every church, but particularly with Emerge, is I put the best, most important, like the, the most special oomph thing for the evening meeting. The reason is, is because I can then invite everybody back from the morning um, to who wouldn't normally come to the evening. So the evening meeting tonight is at the Warner campus. And so it would be well worth your time uh, to come over there. It's an hour and 15 minute service or something. That's the total amount. And I promise you to change your life. If it doesn't, I'll personally uh, refund whatever they charge you to come. So whatever that is, I'm just totally, just totally stress-free. You can come over and um, check that out. I promise you it, it'll change your life. So I, I want to talk to you about Jesus this morning. Um, and uh, the reason is, is because I want to recenter, I want to do my part to recenter some Christian thought. Um, all you have to do uh, to take a beautiful word and make it ugly is attach toxic images to that word. So if you take a word like Christian, which is a beautiful word, um, and you attach toxic images to that, then you can make a beautiful word not very beautiful at all. Uh, so, so people have been calling me in the last couple of weeks, you know, panicking a little bit, you know, hey, Shane, the census says Australia is not Christian. And I'm, all right. Okay. So a, a couple of thoughts about that, right? So um, uh, first of all, uh, you, just because somebody doesn't identify with something on a census is not necessarily the issue. The issue is, is what images have Christians who are in control of the narrative uh, painted about Christianity. And um, I, I have a good friend of mine that we have good chats. He, he's just very, very smart. And he told me, this is a couple months ago, he said, Shane, the reason I could never become a Christian is because if the whole world converted and thought like Christians think, the world would not be better. And he said, now that's the definition of futility. If the whole world converts and thinks like you think about something, if the world's not better, there's a problem with how you think, right? And I, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. And then I just said, well, tell me, tell me what you think a Christian is. And so he went on to tell me the Christianity he was raised in, and he's rejected that. But once I heard it, instead of fighting him, once I heard him out, I was like, yeah, I would reject that too. Absolutely. If the whole world thought like that, the world would not be a better place. But there might be a better way to think about the word Christian, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. And so we've, we've had some really good chats around that because Christianity is – Christians are not climate experts, Okay. There are climate experts. They're called climate scientists, all right? Uh, Christians are not health experts. There are health experts. They're called doctors. Just because someone's a Christian does not mean you'd let them operate on your eyeball, okay? It's like, it's like, hey, are you a doctor? No, but I'm a Christian. Hold still, right? No way. No, no, no way, right? Come on. Christians are not climate experts. They're not health experts. They're not sex experts, obviously. They're not theology experts. Most of us aren't very good at that either. They're they're not political experts, obviously. All right, Christians aren't any of that, and nor are they supposed to be. A, a Christian is someone who's supposed to be seeing the world how Jesus saw it, 
seeing God how Jesus saw God and applying Scripture how Jesus applied Scripture. The goal of Christianity is not to be right about singular verses. The goal of Christianity is to apply those verses the way Jesus applied those Scriptures. And I would say if the world saw the world how Jesus saw it and the world saw God how Jesus saw God and the world world applied Scripture how Jesus applied Scripture, I would say the world would be a better place. I would say it would be an infinitely better place. But but the issue is, is that the people in charge of the narrative at times don't paint Christianity that way. And say, so I want to talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about Jesus for a second. Now, so Orthodox Christianity from the beginning has affirmed the divinity of Christ. And I affirm the divinity of Christ. Matter of fact, I wrote a 10-part series on the implications of the divinity of Christ. Um, uh, Mark and Nina Elmendorf affirm the divinity of Christ. The ACC affirms the divinity of Christ. We affirm the divinity of Christ. Here's the, however, and I want to give that its 10 seconds of due. We affirm the divinity of Christ. At the same time, Orthodox Christianity from the beginning has said Jesus was fully man. And, And here's the problem. The problem with seeing Jesus as only God lets us rationalize not applying how he taught us to live. So, so it goes something like this. Hey, come on now. Jesus taught us to see our enemies and to treat them differently than what I'm seeing you treat. And you're like, yeah, but that was easy for him. He was God. Okay. But he was also fully man. And I want to talk to you about the humanity of Christ today. Not because the divinity of Christ doesn't matter. It's just because I only have 35 minutes, right? And, and, and I think the divinity of Christ gets most of the play times. So I want to talk to you about Jesus as a human being, which we also fully affirm. Now, Jesus as a human being was a rabbi. Now, how do I know that? Well, it's because they called him rabbi, okay? And, and that, was a special, that was a special title, okay? You didn't, in the whole Bible, there's only three people called rabbi. Jesus, Paul, Gamaliel. That is it, right? You never see Rabbi Peter, Rabbi James, Rabbi John. You don't see any of that. You do see Rabbi Jesus, you see Rabbi Paul, and you do see Rabbi Gamaliel. It was the highest honor to be trusted with teaching Scripture. Remember, only 3% of people in that day could read. So the person who could read and teach you, if you're, tra- you're handing somebody, this guy shows up at your synagogue and you immediately hand him a scroll and say, teach us what this is saying, you're putting incredible trust in that man's integrity. You're putting incredible trust in that man's um, devotion to that Scripture and to what it means to live that Scripture out. You're, like This was like the high honor. So for Jesus to be a rabbi, that was like this high honor in his world. And rabbis teach people how to live, specifically how to see the world, how to see God, and how to apply scripture. When, When life throws you a situation and a scripture is thrown up, how do you apply that scripture? And the way a rabbi would do that was called his yoke. A rabbi's yoke was his summary statement of how he lived how he was wanting his followers to live. It was a summary statement of what he bound and what he loosed, what what he forbidden and what he allowed. It was a summary statement of what is work on Sabbath, what is not work on Sabbath. It was what is the reasons for divorce, what are not reasons to divorce. It was the summary statement. How do we treat the poor? How do we how do we acknowledge the afflicted? How do we act when someone treats us unjustly? This was all a rabbi's yoke. And that rabbi would be handing that way of seeing things down to his disciples, which brings us to here. Are we not a room of disciples of Jesus Christ? 
Hopefully, the, okay, that, that was really un, um, I'm not really moved by your, so are we not a room of disciples of Jesus Christ, right? Well, what that means is, is that our goal is not only, is not simply to go to heaven when we die, although I affirm that too. Our goal is to live like Jesus taught us to live here. Because the issue, the critique of Christianity, that if the whole world saw the world the way Christians see the world, the world would not be better. That is a fair critique and I got to tell you, based on this guy's experience, his version of Christianity would not make the world a better place. But I would say that if we get back to Jesus, it would definitely make the world a, a, a better place. So let's look at this. This is Matthew chapter 4. This is the calling. That's a pretty good photo of me right there. I, I didn't even know that was behind me. So, sometimes churches put photos behind me, and it looks like I'm smelling something, right? Right? That was actually really, really good. This is Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Now, if you're taking notes, that's important. They were fishermen. Come follow me. Now, here's his sales pitch, right? Follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. Quite frankly, his sales pitch needs some work, does it not, right? Like, first of all, follow me is not compelling. There's not that many details in it. And then fishing for people is sort of a weird metaphor, um, but it but it, it, it works. Um, and at once they left their nets and, and followed him. So you got grown people quitting their jobs to follow this guy whose sales pitch, quite frankly, needs some work. But then he's quite very successful with this. Keep going. Next slide. So going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they leave the boat and their father and follow this guy, right? They quit. Their, four grown people quitting their jobs. Right? And if you're married, how does this go, right? So you get home, and the wife says, hey, honey, how was your day? And you're like, I quit my job. She's like, you did what? Yeah, I quit my job. Why? Well, this guy came by, told me to follow him. I thought, that's a good idea. Where are you going? He didn't say. When are you coming back? Didn't say that either. He just said, follow me, and I thought, I'm in, Right? This is strange sort of stuff going on. And then, but, but he's remarkably successful. Here's the fifth disciple. Check this one out. Next slide. This is Mark 2. And once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And, and as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me. And, and then Levi gets up, and he quits his job, and follow, it's five for five. He ends up going 12 for 12. With, with a sales pitch that, quite, can we just all admit together, your sales pitch needs some work, right? You could use a little bit more detail, right? But, but he gets, he's just remarkably successful at it. Now, when I learned about this, it changed my life. I'm hoping it'll change yours. Um, so I'm going to share uh, with you what I, I learned about this. Uh, so every Hebrew boy longed to be a rabbi. Why? Because it was like the highest honor. But, but at the end of the day, only the best of 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 the best made it. It's sort of like this. How many boys in Brisbane grow up wanting to play rugby league? All of them. How many of them are ever actually going to play for the Brisbane Broncos? None of them, right? Very small percentage. Almost everybody is told, you're not good enough to play at the next level. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of the best of the best of the best of the best end up at the Brisbane Broncos or on the, or especially the state of origin games, right? So these are the best. That's why every 45-year-old man in Brisbane has a back-in-the-day story, right? Like, I was awesome. 
back in the day, right? Then I hurt my knee. It's my knee, you know, and and that that derailed my whole rugby career. Actually, you probably just weren't good enough, right? But it's fine, right? But because it's a very small percentage of people are. That's that's what it was like to be a rabbi. Um, I'm going to quickly, in hopefully three or four minutes, tell you how what it took to become a rabbi. Um, Is just unbelievable. So. First of all, you had to memorize Leviticus by the age of six. Um, so you, we're all done, right? Right. So, so you had to memorize Leviticus by the age of six. Um, and remember, most people couldn't read, so you had to memorize it based on someone who could read telling it to you. You're memorizing it by here. It's unbelievable. So you had to memorize Leviticus by age six. If you memorize Leviticus by age six, you qualified for the first school. If you could bring that slide up for me, next one. Um, the, the Bet Safar, that was the first school. The Bet Safar literally means the school of the book. Um, in the school of the book, it lasted from six to 12. You had to memorize the whole Bible. Um, let, me, let me define the whole Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy back then, right? So you had to, you had to memorize the whole of the Torah um, in, in, in that 6 to 12, uh, to, to prove you'd memorize the Torah by the age of 12, uh, the teachers of the law would, uh, would start any passage of Torah and then stop, and wherever they stopped, you had to keep going, right? So you had to prove you'd memorize the whole book. If you prove you memorized the whole book, then you graduated uh, to a test. Um, so you would take a Torah exam at 12 years old, which leads to this question, if to just take the test, you had to memorize the whole book, what could they possibly be testing you on? Well, your test was based on your ability to ask questions about the book, um, not your ability to give answers. The greatness of rabbis was known for their ability to facilitate discussion, not answer questions to shut conversation down. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions, not his answers, his questions. Now, if you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions, you graduated to the next school. The next school was called the Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud literally means school of disciple, like a house of a disciple or school of disciple. And in the school of disciples, you it lasted from 12 to 30. It was 18 years long and five stages. So for the sake of time and relevance, we'll call them stage one, two, three, four, five. And the idea is, is if you graduate from stage one, you get to go to stage two. Yes, yes, everybody's with me. So, right, so then two to three, three to four, um, four to five. If you ever wondered why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30, and then at 30 years old, he reappears, and everybody's going, Rabbi, Rabbi, this, this is why. So, you have this five-stage sort of thing. Now, stage five of the Bet-Tel Mid, everybody graduates, right? Along the way, if you're disqualified, they said, we're sorry, you don't have what it takes to be in ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of the best of the best keep going. Now, stage five of the Bet-Tel Mid, next slide, is called Samika. Now, this is the most important word I'm going to tell you today, so I want you to say it with me with some, with some gusto, okay? So the word sounds like this, Samika. Samika. All right, ready? Go. Samika. That was a perfect amount of gusto. Let's try that again. Ready? Go. Samika. Now, to sound Jewish, you got to make another move. That other move that sounds like this. All right? So, so everybody try, try that. It just sounds like this. All right, ready? Go. Uh, very perfect, right? So, so there were rabbis. There were rabbis without... Ready? There were rabbis without Samika. And there were rabbis with Samika. Now, Samika is the word authority. 
So there were rabbis without authority, and there were rabbis with authority. Now, most all rabbis are rabbis without authority, um, but 99.9%. But once, about every two or three generations, a rabbi would come along so special, they would say, you are a rabbi with authority. Now, the difference between a rabbi with authority and a rabbi without authority is pretty simple. A rabbi without authority had to teach the yoke of the rabbi that taught him, right? So a rabbi... A, a, a rabbi mentors someone for 18 years, and they pass their yoke down from generation to generation to generation so that every yoke in Israel was somehow tied to some rabbi with Samika or with uh, authority. But if you were a rabbi with authority, you could make up your own yoke. You could make up your own way of teaching scripture. You could make up your own sort of hermeneutic. You could make up your own way of, of, of living. Now, here's how they determined who had authority and who didn't. When you graduated from rabbi school, they baptized you. And at your baptism, you had to have two witnesses to your authority to be ordained as a rabbi with authority. They took this very, very seriously. Think about your scripture. When Jesus was 30 years old, he was wowing the... Sorry, when Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. Think about his baptism. And John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness one, John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. It's almost like the father was saying, if no one else is going to speak up, I will. And Jesus comes up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but as a rabbi with Samika. You missed your cue there. Not just as a rabbi, but a rabbi with Samika. Which means, which means he can make up his own yoke. And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. And by the way, his yoke started a movement that was at first called the Jesus Way. And then it was just called People of the Way. And then eventually it took on the name Christian. Christianity at its roots is seeing the world a certain way, the way Jesus saw it. Seeing God a certain way. And applying scripture a certain way. The way Jesus' yoke taught us to. Think about your Bible. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach. But you teach as one with authority. Yes, Samika. Like, like you, 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 that doesn't mean he was yelling. It meant he was saying something new. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach. You're, you're teaching as one with authority. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy. And the key to that phrase is my. For Jesus to say my yoke, not Hillel's yoke, not Shammai's yoke, not the other rabbis with authority. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy. Have you ever wondered why Jesus' first sermon was so well attended? He had to climb a mountain to create enough space to talk to these people, right? Like, I've been preaching for years. You're a right, nice-looking group of people, but I hardly have to climb a mountain to get away with you. Why, why, would you, why would you need a crowd? Why would you draw a crowd that big in your first sermon? Well, if you're the new rabbi, and you're the new rabbi with Samika, and you're making up a yoke, and rumor has it your yoke is easier and your burden is lighter than the other yokes, people would have been coming from everywhere to hear this rabbi's way of living because his yoke is easy. Now, the first thing you do as a rabbi is you go get disciples. Why? Because you got to be passing your way of living down to somebody, right? Now think about it. Where would you get disciples? 
from the school of disciples. You would go back to the temple or the synagogue, and you would find, here's what you would find at the Bet Talmud. You'd find pre-vetted 12-year-old boys who had already memorized the whole Bible and had proved they were smart and proved they were dependable and proved they were disciplined and proved they were really, really astute. You did not have to ask questions about their ability at all. And, and, and all you had to ask if you were the new rabbi is, do I believe they can do greater things than me? And if the rabbi believed they could do greater things than him, he would ordain them into his rabbi school with two words, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Every Hebrew boy longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But most of them ever only heard, you're disqualified, go back and earn a living at your family trade. But this new rabbi, he doesn't go to the Bet Talmud to find his disciples. Where does he go? He goes to the lake. And who does he find? He finds fishermen. Hang on a second. If you're a fisherman, what does that mean? It means you've been disqualified. And this new rabbi standing on the banks of the sea says, Simon, Andrew, follow me. And they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity. Why? They had longed their whole life to be entrusted by a rabbi to carry his yoke. But this rabbi, he doesn't just qualify qualified people. He qualifies the disqualified. That is the yoke of our rabbi. And aren't you glad? Somebody disqualify me and somebody disqualify you. Can you see why if the word Christian ever got hijacked by a group of people who wants to disqualify folks, it misses the point of what Christianity is. Oh, by the way, first four disciples, fishermen. Fifth disciple, what was his job? Tax collector. Hang on. Where was he a tax collector? At the lake. Hold on a second. If you're the tax collector at the lake, who have you been taxing? Fishermen. In other words, we're going to find out right now if you four have what it takes to follow me. Can you forgive the guy that's been robbing from you for years? And let's go change the world. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Um, Once a rabbi got his disciples, the first thing they did is he taught them how to walk. It was quite literal. Remember how Jesus said, people will know you're my disciple if you walk how I walk? Obviously meaning live how I taught you to live, right? But it was quite literal. Like um, his Jewish history talks about how you could always tell which disciple belonged to which rabbi because they walked like him. So you would learn, you would walk behind your rabbi and you would learn literally how to walk like he walked. Which makes me wonder if there wasn't like a first century rabbi with a limp or something, right? But you would literally walk like he walked. And you could always tell who the best student of the day was. The best student of the day was the line leader, just like today. You got to be the line leader, and you could always tell who that was because the rabbis would wear these special shoes that would throw up dust. And so the person covered in the dust of their rabbi, you can, if you're a reader, you can read about that in Lewis Verberg's book, Covered in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus, where you would, you would, re, you would, you would get covered in the dust of your rabbi from your waist down. But it wasn't dust you wanted to wipe off. It was dust you wanted to show off. It was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So you'd go back to synagogue and you'd be like, hey, check out my dust, right? It it was that, hey, remember there's this one time that Jesus said, if you ever go to a place and they don't accept you, what do you do? Shake, yeah, yeah. How, How can the same guy that says forgive everybody and be merciful and be kind to your enemies. Say, shake the dust off your feet. Unless shaking the dust off your feet is a blessing. <laughs> in, in their world, shake, being covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, Jesus is like, if you ever go to a place and they're mean to you, still bless them with the best blessing you can give them, even if all you can give them is the dust off your feet. That 
is the yoke of our, and you know what the truth of it is? We'll either be covered in the dust of our rabbi or we'll be covered in the dust of our own issues, the dust of our mom, the dust of our dad, or my personal favorite, the dust of that's just what I was always taught, as if, as if that's going to stand the test of time. We're not called to be covered in the dust of those things. Those things don't change the world. What changes the world for the better is the dust of our rabbi, seeing the world how Jesus saw it, seeing God how Jesus saw God, and applying scripture the way Jesus applied scripture. I love the yoke of our rabbi. You start looking at how Jesus applied scripture. It's unbelievable. Like there's this one time where um, there was this lady, and she was caught in the act of adultery, right? Like in the act, right? Ooh, in the act, right? That's bad. And now, now, now you guys know your Bible, like, right? What does the Bible clearly say to do to her? Stone her. There's a verse for that, and it's in context. You can't say, well, that's out of context. No, no, no. There's a verse that says stone adulterers, right? No question about it. So they, so they bring this lady to Jesus. Now, I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Why do they need Jesus? They need someone with Yes, yes. So they bring this lady to Jesus, and they're trying to trick him. And they're like, Jesus, because they're sick of this merciful, forgive everybody. Everybody's included, right? Even if they have rashes, or if they're Moabites, or if they're Sidonites, or if they're eunuchs. Jesus, even though they had, a, they had 613 verses to disqualify people, Jesus is like hugging disqualified people. He, like, they, they were irritated with us. So they're like, what's he going to do now? They throw this lady at Jesus' feet, and they say, Jesus, we have a verse says stoner what's your yoke say now jesus is in a conundrum isn't he does jesus want to stone the lady no no but is jesus supposed to keep the torah yes so jesus is in this conundrum he goes oh you're right um so this is a great lesson in how jesus applied scripture by the way um oh uh, uh, yeah you know what the torah says stoner so i say stoner there kept the Torah. Oh, but wait a minute. I have Samika, which means I can make up my own yoke. So the Torah says stoner, so my yoke says stoner. But my yoke also says you can't throw stones unless you're perfect, right? Which is just this rabbi kung fu, like, wah! Right? There's this, this is like, oh, so everybody gets tired of holding their stones, you know, and they put them down, and they walk away, and Jesus draws something in the dirt. Who knows what that is? And anyway, he, he waits for everybody to go away, and he says, lady, uh, just answer the question, where are your accusers? Not what did you do, not to, no. where are your accusers? She looks around, she's like, oh, they're not here. He says, great, then neither do I condemn you. Why? Because the Torah said, yet yeah, you have to stone someone caught in the act of adultery, but the Torah also says you have to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply makes the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. That is the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi looked at someone caught in the act of adultery and said, I don't condemn you. Could our yoke do that? My yoke couldn't. You know the Christianity I was raised in? Um, couldn't do that. I actually saw this once as a kid. It's trauma. They, that somebody committed adultery in the church and they brought him up in front of everybody and they announced it from the stage and embarrassed him. That's not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 with severe daddy issues. Like that. And, and then people left the church and they go, oh, you rejected Jesus. No, they did not reject Jesus. They rejected that image of Jesus. And that image of Jesus should be rejected. Right? That's not the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi was, I don't condemn you. What was the next line? Now go and sin no more. We, we, we reverse it. We go, go and sin no more so God won't condemn you. That's not what Jesus said. 
Jesus said, I'm going to be kind to you, and hopefully my kindness is what empowers you to change your life. It's almost like it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. <laughs> right? <laughs> that is the... See, if the word Christian ever got hijacked by people who condemn people who do things, um, if you were caught in adultery, how would you want to be treated? Well, you'd want to be treated, you'd, two things, likely. I'll tell you, my, if I got caught in adultery, I'd want two things to happen. I'd want to be let off the hook, particularly if the penalty was death. I, I, I'd, I'd want to be let off the hook, but then I'd want to be challenged to change my life. I'd want to be challenged like, hey, this, this doesn't lead somewhere, this doesn't lead somewhere good. So, so Jesus treated her as she would want to be treated, as he would want to be treated, right? That, Jesus called that fulfilling scripture. That Christians aren't called to be right about one verse. Christians are called to fulfill scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's how Jesus applied all scripture, was do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it changed the world. Remember there was this Ethiopian eunuch, and there was this verse in Deuteronomy 23 that says, no eunuchs will ever be welcomed by God. And this Ethiopian eunuch has this encounter with a Jesus expert named Philip. And he's like, can you think of any reason I can't be? And Philip's like, you know what? There's this verse, Deuteronomy 23. But I'm going to treat you as, as I would want to be treated if I were you. And you're included. And you know, two-thirds of Ethiopia today are Christ followers because of that one act of kindness. Like, come on. That's the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke. You know, the yoke of our rabbi seemed to be in operation in the Old Testament too. Um, there's a scripture in Hebrews 11. Um, it's, it's called the heroes of the faith passage. You'll, you'll, we're not going to read it. You'll know. It's like, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith, Isaac, by faith, Samson. That one, right? If you go back and read their stories, they all made mistakes with zeros attached to it. By, by Abraham gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem. If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, what would we be saying about Abraham? If Abraham was available to preach at a merged church next Sunday, would we celebrate him? Or would we talk about his mistakes? Like, seriously, Isaac did something. Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You got this leg sticking up out of the sand. God said, you'll, you'll do. I'll, I'll have you write the foundation of all scripture. You'll... you'll. Seems like God was always qualifying disqualified people. Yeah. Jephthah did something real dumb. Samson was sleeping with prostitutes on his wedding night because he got depressed because his best man stole his wife. <laughs> but, right, right, right. Solomon had a thousand women. A thousand women. My God. Why would you expose yourself to such stress? A thousand women. What was God's response to Solomon? You want to write a book on wisdom? <laughs> Imagine that conversation. Excuse me, sir. Are you the guy that successfully navigated the affections of a thousand women? I am. You've got to be the smartest guy on earth. <laughs> let's, let's write a book together. By faith, David. David had 700 women. 700. Wow. And he still went and committed adultery and murdered the, to get the one he wasn't supposed to. You know... You know, there are Christian denominations in the world today that according to their written bylaws would never have David speak from their platform because of the mistake he made. They give him a life sentence. But they'll open a book he wrote, call it the word of God, and fail to see the hypocrisy in that and why most people don't understand why that doesn't make any sense. It's like the yoke of our rabbi was always qualifying disqualified people. You know, the God Jesus fully revealed was a God that loves people more than the rules. Even if there was a rule... God loves people more than that rule. 
It's, the, the word for that's called grace, forgiveness, love, kindness, trusting God to move people where God wants them to be instead of us manipulating their life story. It's the yoke of our rabbi. This is this is one time where Jesus is having a pretty bad day. Like he, so they they he has a he, they have a four hour meal. Then he has a prayer meeting. Um, after a four-hour meal with four glasses of wine, and people can't stay awake, can't really, right? So he's, like, upset about that. He's, he's stressed to the point of sweating blood. They come, and he gets betrayed by one of his friends, and then this platoon of Roman soldiers arrest him in the middle of the night in this garden, and then they take him to a fake trial at, at, a, at a guy's backyard in, uh, at, at midnight, and then he ends up on a cross before everybody could be up to fight for him. And so it's just a, it's just a bad day. He ends, up, he ends up hanging on a Roman cross and, and the guy next to him is having an equally bad day so there's this guy next to him he's having a pretty bad day himself and and they can't breathe and there, there's all of this and, and this guy can't speak really because he can't breathe so he's like he can only get three words out please remember me and what does Jesus say that's it today you'll be with me in paradise Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, well, Bo, you better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer. They're not going to think you're saved in 2022. Imagine that conversation. Sinner's prayer, what's that? It's this prayer they make up in 1830 to help people connect with me, and I dig it. What's it based on? It's based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. What's Romans? It's a book that hasn't been written yet, bro, but you better hurry up. No. Like, in that moment, in that moment, in that moment of incredible stress, Jesus is still thinking about other people. And one millimeter moved towards him. He moves the rest of the way, even in great stress. And while we're at it, let's just forgive everybody at the foot of the cross too. Why? Because Jesus forgives people because of the cross, not because of what people are doing at the foot of it. Right? That is the way Jesus saw the world. That's the way Jesus saw God. That's the way Jesus applied scripture. I would say if we start seeing our enemies that way, if we start seeing the poor and the marginalized that way, if we start responding in grace that way, if the whole world converted to that way of seeing things, I would say the world would be a better place. How did this word Christian ever get hijacked? I can promise you it's not the world, it's not the leftist, it's us. We control the narrative of what Christianity is. It's the yoke of our rabbi. There's this one time. Jesus has this opportunity to get even with a guy named Peter who denied him three times. And um, he doesn't take it. He cooks breakfast on the beach for this guy. <laughs> And his response is, hey, do you still love me after all this? And Peter's like, I do love you, man. And Jesus is like, good, let's go change the world. He doesn't even bring his failure up. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I'll tell you two more stories, one from the Bible and one from my personal life. Um, and, and, then, and then we'll do some, some thought. Because uh, great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for application, right? So if your only thought is, I agree with you, uh, whatever. Or if your only thought is, I disagree with you, also whatever. Uh, our sermons are meant, to be, are meant to be wrestled with for application, right? So there's this, there's this one time. It's very easy to read over it. It's like Matthew 9, I think. It's just like this two sentences. It says, and Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Real quick, like you could really read over that pretty quick. But that, that's not real quick. Um, Caesarea Philippi today. Today is over an hour drive in a motor car on a on a paved road, right? Um, it would be like it would be like walking from here to Malulaba, right? You wouldn't just you, you just wouldn't just do that, right? Not without some sort of purpose. Also, it was the place no Christian would go. Okay, like Christians didn't go to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, today, Caesarea Philippi is not called Caesarea Philippi. It's called Panaya. 
It's just easier to say. That's one. But it's also um, was the center of the headquarters of the worship of the goat god Pan. Um, it was like, look, whatever the worst thing going on in Redcliffe is today, it's Nickelodeon compared to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was the most debaucherous place you could possibly uh, imagine. I, I've, I've been there, and, and um, I took a photo of it. Let me show you the next slide. So if, if this, is a, this is a photo of, that, that is the, that is the yeah. biggest photo I've ever, I, so, that, that, so, so if you're wondering why this photo is of such high quality, it's because I took it myself. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, it is amazing. Like, like, like professional photographers are, 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 are always trying to get strangers' arms in their photos. And, and I, I nailed it. I, I got to tell you, I'm tr- I, I, I think I'm cool enough to start a trend here. Um, and so uh, uh, over here, over here was the, the, the grotto. Um, there's, there's, a few, there's a few young people in the room, so I, I want to be historically accurate, but I don't want to be gross, okay? Uh, so I need the older people uh, to read through the code I'm using here. So, um, so this, this is true. This was called the Court of Pan and the Nymphos, okay? Think Nymphos, all right? So, so, uh, so that's true. You, it's on these big plaques. Um, Pan received worship through public acts of fertility rituals. Okay, so that was going on right here. Public acts of fertility rituals. This is like horrible. This is people debasing themselves. And the reason is, is because they were taught that this was the entrance and exit to hell. And, and so what they, what they were taught was that if you didn't worship Pan properly... He would open up the door to hell and swallow you into it. So people, largely underclass people, were being forced to debase themselves in this way just to keep from being swallowed. Now, Jesus took his youth group on a missions trip here, okay? <laughs> right? Like, I'd have been fired for sure, right? Oh, my goodness, right? right? And, and so, so this group of 12 guys walk in with Jesus to this scene. And, and remember, remember, Jesus has to, like, focus them. He's like, Peter, Peter, right here, bro. Right here. Right here, man. Remember? And Peter's like shakes it off. He's like, who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter like shakes it off. He's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Like he's all, this is like a disorienting situation, right? And he's like, yeah, no, no, no. My eyes are on you. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember what Jesus says? That's right. And upon this rock, we'll build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Jesus goes into this situation, and he doesn't condemn them for what they're doing. He doesn't call out their darkness. His response is more, um, you're acting like that because you're scared of this? And Jesus stands over the gates of hell and says, bring it on. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I would say if the world, if the whole world converted and saw the world that way, and saw God that way, and applied scripture that way, I would say the world would definitely be a better place. I used to kickbox. Um, I was really good at it uh, back in the day. <laughs> back, back in the day, I was awesome. Uh, that hurt my knee, you know. Um, I used to kickbox. I, I, was good. I, I won the Southeastern Regionals two years in a row. Um, I, that qualified me for the U.S. Open. I fought in the U.S. Open. I, I placed high enough in the U.S. Open to qualify for the NASCAR World Championships, okay? So I was decent. 
Um, now, now, fighting today is different. I'm 46. I have no interest in fighting today because I just it's different. Back then, it was like karate kid stuff, you know. Stop! Point! Right? Now, they take you to the ground and tear your arm off. It's, it's just a different thing. But I was good back then. Um, and so, as I, was, I came home. My mom was one of these moms that was quite proud of me. Um, she had this room of my trophies and things like this. And so, the whole neighborhood came over to watch the U.S. Open fight. She had taped it on one of those old VHS, like the Goldbergs, you know, right? Um, and, and, so I, and so they all came over, and there was this guy in my neighborhood named Kenneth Brown. Kenneth Brown was a freak of nature. Um, I am six foot two, 86 kilos, as I stand here. And if you sleep in and drink Coke, you too can one day have a body like this. Um, he, 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 Kenneth was 6'2", 95 kilos in the eighth grade. When we were in fourth grade together, we'd go to recess. Kenneth had to shave right? Like, it never occurred to me he might have failed four times. We were in the same grade, but he was enormous. He shows up, and he says, Shane Willard, I think I can whoop you. I took one look at him. I said, I think you're right. He said, no, I'm serious. I want to fight. I said, I ain't fighting you. I'm serious. You're twice my size. He goes, I bought boxing gloves to prove I could whoop you. I said, oh, wait, boxing gloves? You mean we're going to put our hand in a mitt, and you can't grab me and take me to the ground? We're going to stand up and box. You said fight. What you meant was box. Yeah. I thought we can do that. So the friends went outside. You could picture this. You know, fight, fight, fight. You, the, the, the whole ring. I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown. I beat him to death. I was fast. He was slow. I was skilled. He was not. I couldn't hurt him. It's huge. I was just in and out. Pop, 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 pop. Right? Sort of frustrated him, you know. He decided to try to end it with one punch. He threw this right cross that was about this slow, like, right? I actually had time to think, I'll move, right? When he finished the punch, he left himself in this position. And never before nor since have I hit a human being this hard. It was a perfect shot. It wasn't one of these, uh uh-uh. Big muscles leading small muscles, everything together, right on the base of his chin. His head snapped back. I just stood over him waiting for him to fall. In retrospect, I should have kept hitting him, you know. I never hit anybody that hard in my life. I just sort of stood over him. We caught his balance. He looked up at me, and now he's mad. His face turned red. He said, boy, is that all you got? And it was. How many of you know you hit somebody with your best shot and they're still coming? You lose. I forfeited, walked away. You know, Paul, there's this guy, he's an apostle named Paul. He wrote a large part of the New Testament. He said that the yoke of our rabbi was put on public display at the cross against the principalities and powers of this world. There was this boxing match, right? Like, metaphorically. There's this way of seeing the world, this way of seeing God, this way of applying scripture, hanging there on a tree and what happened they beat him and 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 they oh oh blessed are the merciful oh forgive everybody oh be a peacemaker so that you may be children of your father in heaven oh turn the other cheek go the extra mile give your tunic and your cloak huh oh that's your way of seeing the world how about this can you do that with slapping and beating and 39 lashes and nails in your hand and they beat him 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 essentially the temptation on the cross was violate your yoke to use your power to get even with us this is why any message of Jesus that says Jesus is going to like 
Like, that's not the message of Jesus. I don't care if there's a 25-foot cross over the top of the building. You've missed the whole point. They beat him, and 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 they beat him. And he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving until he died. Can't do more to a guy than kill him. Where did he go? Well, no one knows. Except for the fact that Peter claims that Jesus told him when he died, he went to hell. And he preached there for three days. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, I wonder how his altar call went, you know? And right? This is how I picture it. I picture Jesus descending into hell and looking Satan right in the eye and saying, boy, is that all you got? Was that your best shot? You thought you could destroy my yoke by killing me? No, 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 no. I'm stuck here for three days. I'm going to preach the whole time. And when I get out of here, I'm going to cook breakfast on the beach for the very people who don't deserve it. Why? Because the yoke of our rabbi is love saves the day. Always treating people as they are worth and never as they deserve. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I would say that if the whole world converted to that, the world would be a better place. So may you, my brothers and sisters, may you know that you serve a God that believes in you more than you believe in him. May you understand that his yoke is the hope for the world. May we reclaim the beauty of the word Christian, not by changing his yoke. Like we have no right to change his yoke. We don't have Samika. All of our authority comes from Christ. May we never change the yoke of Jesus and call it Jesus. Come on. May we be the people who show by living the yoke of our rabbi. You know, in the Roman Empire, they never said, hear, hear what they believe. They always said, look, look at how they live. This changes the world. I'm so happy to be a part of your morning. I hope Jesus got bigger for you today. The cross worked better. The resurrection is central. Scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I hope you laughed a bit. I hope you were moved a bit. I hope you're definitely challenged to never change the yoke of our rabbi. But more than anything at all, may each and every one of you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Grace and peace, everybody. Thank you.